Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Right, good morning. morning. Oh, I'm a little bit loud. Okay, so we're going to start by finishing off the couple of points we didn't quite get to last week uh, in our our series. We looked at this, remember? Remember this? You do encourage me when you say that. We look at this powerful combination of emotional health and and, uh, contemplation and spirituality. And it enables us to do these things, to love ourselves well, to love God well, and to love others well. We're going to press into that today, but we did get into only two, uh, sorry, one of these, the benefit of slowing down. I want to begin today by looking at the benefit of being anchored in God's love. So have you figured out yet, Christianity isn't about you pursuing God, but actually God's pursuing you. Have you worked that out yet? Well, he is. He's chasing hard after you. He absolutely loves you. You're his preoccupation. Scripture says you're the apple of his eye. You're the most precious thing in his sight. And he's so passionate and jealous for your affection, he's chasing you all over the place. He's following hard after you because he wants more of you. He wants to know more of you. He wants more communion with you. He wants to spend more time with you. And this message of all-consuming love, we read it right from the beginning of the Bible, right through to the book of Revelation we heard read today. It's the story of God's love for us, for you, for me. And often we operate from a place where we know it in our heads, but it doesn't really shift in the place of our affections. We don't often fully operate from the knowledge that we're secure in the love of God. Did anyone this week find some time to get out and find some space, some quiet, some solitude? One person in the whole church, that's fantastic. Let's start there. Two, we've got two, okay. Well, I said you could hold me accountable. I did take my boat out, to use my, um, my analogy I talked about last week, and uh, I went out and spent some quiet time, some stillness with God, and I just heard him say four things to me, four words. Simon, I love you. It's not pantomime, you have to R, it's okay. (laughs) Now I know that mentally, I've read the Bible, I know that it says in here God loves me, but when God speaks that into my spirit, it takes on a whole different dimension, doesn't it? Yeah? And so for me, incredibly powerful encounter with God through four simple words this week, just spending time in solitude and stillness, listening for that small voice of God. And so I encourage you again, you might know lots of things about God, but you need to know God speaking into your spirit as well. So diligently carve out time, find the space to actually go and just be still before the God, before God and let him speak into your spirit, let him speak into you. <clears throat> he wants you to know how long and wide and high and deep is his love for you. He wants you to know that not just as a scripture, but also as a reality. And I can tell it you, and friends can tell it you, and you can read about it, and you can listen about it, but... There's nothing that can replace the Spirit of God speaking into your spirit. Because that's what Jesus went to the cross for. So you could have a a communion with Father. You could actually know the Father's love. And these these times, these contemplations, when we couple those with, with growth and discipline, we actually, we move through a whole sequence. We move from talking at God, which is what most of us do, don't we? We give our lists and our things. And then we start talking to God. We become more conversational. And then we start listening to God. And ultimately, guys, we just start being with God. We just start recognising that just to be with God is an incredibly powerful thing 
to do. And practice of silence and solitude and stillness, it helps us to do these things. It helps to shape, create a container or a vessel where this can begin to develop in our lives. Mother Teresa required anyone who worked with her to spend at least three one-hour blocks a day with God. She, she felt they couldn't minister to the situation they were in without spending at least three one-hour blocks with God. When Daniel was taken captive into Babylon, we find it says that he had the habit of praying three times a day, it says in Daniel 6.10. In fact, he was arrested for it. He was arrested in the act of prayer. Wouldn't that be a fantastic thing to be? <laughs> yes, I've been arrested in the act of prayer. Great. But the reason he was arrested was because he did it so habitually. Even though he's in a fallen culture, under incredible pressure, surrounded by all sorts of pagan influences, he took with him his prayer life and his time with God three times a day, stillness and solitude before the Lord. Everyone has a person inside them that needs nurturing through contemplation. You may not have found yours yet, but everybody inside needs a person inside that needs to be nurtured in that stillness and solitude. Brennan Manning, who wrote the excellent book, Abba's Child, he said this. He said, It's always true, to some extent, that we make our images of God. It's even truer that our image of God makes us. Eventually, we become like the God we image. Healing our image of God heals our image of ourselves. So we become like the God that we image. We become like the God that we think um, and imagine. And the only way we can change that is if we truly have time encountering real God and real spirit and allowing him to form and shape us. So that's that first bit there, benefit of being anchored in God's love. Let's look at the benefit of breaking free from worldly influences. Around the end of the third century, a group of people got so frustrated with the world and the way the world was influencing the church, they fled into the desert. They became known as the Desert Fathers, um, they ran into the deserts of Egypt and we just basically just camped. Church was contaminated, the world was contaminated, and the only place they could find true connection with God was in solitude. And they became the first Christian hermits, if you like. I'm not suggesting we all do that, okay? But um, we can learn something from them. One of them said, Cut the desire for many things out of your heart and so prevent your mind being dispersed and your stillness lost. Cut the desire for many things out of your heart, prevent your mind being dispersed and your stillness lost. There's lots of stuff that we think we can't live without, isn't there? Yeah? We've got lots of bits and pieces that we think we can't, lots of goodies, lots of things. They might be um, things that we've had a long time. They might be new things. They might be things that are just, just help us through the day. We've got all this stuff that we accumulate as we go through life. And we become attached to it and sometimes we become addicted to it. We can't live without it. We have to go to it. Uh, and we spend a lot of time managing this stuff that we have in our lives. And we often trick ourselves into believing the stuff that we've got is great, but if we get the next bit of stuff, it'll be even greater, don't we? So we're holding out for the next bit, you know, the thing on our Amazon wish list or whatever else. You know, when we get that thing or we'll replace this thing with that thing, then we'll be even more content than we currently are. But this also happens in churches. We hang on to traditions, we hang on to events, we hang on to programs, and hang on to different things in our life as well thinking they're the things that we need to hang on to and stay attached to. There's a king called Hezekiah, and uh, he is a, one of the great reformer kings in the Old Testament. And when he came uh, to power at the age of 25, a young man, he brought radical reformation to the nation of Israel. 
The Bible describes him like this. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. When Hezekiah came to power, he began to systematically destroy the high places that the Israelites had assembled. So they assembled these pagan places of worship, these Asherah poles, to these foreign gods. And Hezekiah began to systematically tear all this stuff down and bring reformation to Israel. But also, there was a thing, there was a bronze snake. There was a snake that was present uh, in Israelite worship. This snake uh, had been made by Moses way back before. It, it was made when the Israelites were travelling through the desert and they started to grumble. They said, we want to go back to Egypt. Why have you brought us out here? You know, this is rubbish. We want to go back to Egypt. At least they fed us well in Egypt. You've brought us out here. There's no food. It's hot. And they started to grumble against Moses and against God. You can read about this in Numbers 21. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. So the Lord sent venomous snakes amongst them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take these snakes away from us. So Moses prayed. And the Lord said, make a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole. And when people look at it, they'll be healed. So Moses made the bronze snake and held it on the pole and the people were healed. Now when Hezekiah came to power, this bronze snake was a thousand years old. It was a thousand years old. And it had become imbibed with the whole mysticism. And people had begun to worship the snake. They offered incest to it. They, they, they saw it in power with some sort of mystical power. It became part of their tradition and part of their worship. What did Hezekiah do? He broke it into pieces. Can you imagine the outrage? Imagine him walking into the temple and saying, right, this has got to go. This snake had been worshipped for a thousand years in their tradition. And he broke it. In fact, he not only broke it, <laughs> he called it Neshetan, which means it's a thing of brass. You're worshipping a thing of brass, and he just snapped it and broke it before them. And he did this because he wanted to deliver the people. He wanted them to connect with the God behind the snake, not with the bronze snake that Moses had fashioned. It was a blockage to them fully encountering God and fully worshipping God. And what we can learn from this story is we've all got our own bronze snakes, guys. You've all got your own bronze snakes in your life that you pay homage to, that you worship, that you give uh, attention to. The image of offering incense is, you know, you're coming before this thing and you're giving it time, you're giving it energy, you're giving it your affection. Sometimes we have the wrong impression about what Jesus does in our life. Jesus isn't the God who comes and tucks you in at night and reads you a bedtime story. He's a loving God, he's the kind God, but he's the jealous God. And he's into the business of breaking up bronze snakes in our lives because they rob him of the affection that is truly his. And so, to be free from worldly influences, we need to spend time with God. We need to allow his spirit to speak to our spirit, because our hearts are deceitful. We trick ourselves into thinking we've got some sort of deal going with God. But when the reformation of the spirit comes, he'll say, actually, that needs to go. Or that needs to go. Yes, it was great, but actually, it's robbing me of my affection, so therefore, it needs to go. And the people must have been absolutely outraged with Hezekiah for destroying their beautiful thousand-year-old bronze snake. But Hezekiah saw it as a blockage to the things of God. And so if we begin to try and lead integrated lives, you can say to God, God, what are the, what are the bronze snakes in my life? 
What are the things I'm giving affection to or attention to that actually are robbing you of the affection that's truly yours? So that's finishing off those couple of points from last week. We know this today and look at the benefit of living integrated lives. It says in the, the book of Ephesians, you are taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Augustine wrote in around AD 400, he said, how can you draw close to God if you don't know yourself? These were his words. How can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? And he prayed this, Lord, grant me that I might know myself, that I might know you. St. Teresa Villa wrote this in her book, A Way of Perfection. Almost all problems in spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. So if we don't know ourselves, we struggle to grow spiritually. John Calvin wrote in 1530 in the book, his opening of the, the book, Institutes of Christian Religion. He wrote this. Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. For as these two are connected so Together by so many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and gives birth to the other. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, we're woven together. And the vast majority of people go to the grave never fully knowing themselves. Never fully understanding who they are or who they're meant to be. We find ourselves living somebody else's life. Or at least the expectation that somebody else puts upon us. We live in a way that pleases other people rather than living a life that is true to us. There's a great temptation amongst all of us to live the false self, to live in a way that will make other people see us with greater favour or greater acceptance. We're going to look at the temptation of Jesus now in the wilderness. You can turn there in Luke 4 if you've got your Bibles with you. But we're going to look at some of the, the ways that Satan tempted Jesus. Three false identities that Satan offered him. And the first one is, I am what I do. We're tempted towards performance. So the devil comes to Jesus and said, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Now bear in mind, Jesus had been fasting, not eating, for 40 days. Between 35 and 40 days is the kind of limit of human endurance if you're going to stop eating. After that, things start to go downhill pretty quick. Okay, from 45 days to sort of 55 days, you'll die. So Jesus had not eaten for 40 days. He's on the limit of his physical endurance. And Satan comes to him and says, turn these stones to bread. Now Jesus had done nothing at that point. He'd been a carpenter. He had no ministry. He had no reputation. He'd done nothing at all. He had no followers. Satan offers him a way out. He said, why don't you just do something? Why don't you perform? Turn these stones to bread. You've achieved nothing so far. Why don't you achieve something now by doing something? And the temptation was for Jesus to perform. Many of us consider ourselves worthwhile by our achievements, don't we? What have we done in life? What have we achieved? When you meet somebody, what's the first question you ask them? What do you do? What do you do? What have you achieved? The first temptation is towards performance. I am what I do. The second, I am what I have. Satan took Jesus to the highest place of the temple and he showed him all the magnificence of the world. And he said, look at all this stuff. All this stuff, all this stuff that people have. Isn't it amazing? Magnificent, wonderful stuff. 
you can have all this stuff too. You can have it all. In fact, you get, at the moment, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. They've got everything. If you want to be somebody, you need stuff. I can give you all this stuff. You're nobody if you haven't got anything. And he offered him the temptation to possess. The devil was playing on Jesus' profound fears of insecurity. He didn't have anything. He didn't have any possessions. He didn't have any, any stuff. And, and Satan said, you can have all this stuff. Culture also measures us by what we own, doesn't it? We love to talk about our stuff. We love to display our stuff. We're measured by how much stuff we accumulate. Who's got the most stuff? Who's got the most money? Who's got the most beautiful body? That's massive in our culture at the moment. The body you possess is such a powerful thing in our culture. Who's got the best education, the best talents? Who's the best looking? It's all about what we possess. The third temptation that came to Jesus via Satan was... I am what others think. This is the temptation of popularity. Satan said, Jesus, why don't you throw yourself down in front of this crowd and then stand up, ta-da, and then we'll think you're amazing. It'll knock David Blaine off his perch. You know, you throw yourself down in front of all these believers and jump up alive. Instantly you'll have followers. Instantly you'll have adulation. Instantly you'll have recognition. Why don't you just do something dramatic? You know, all these temptations come to us to be somebody other than ourselves, to live the false self, to live differently. There's a guy called uh, Scott Peck, and he wrote the book The Road Less Travelled. And he said this about his connection with um, somebody else when he was a young man. He was at school, he was 15. He said uh, he met this guy, and then he spoke to him for 10 minutes, and then he analysed his conversation with him afterwards, and he he realised this. He said, I've been totally... Self-occupied. For two or three minutes before we met, all I could think about was the cleverest things I might say to impress him. Have you been there? During our five-minute conversation, I listened only to say what I could say back to him that was clever or witty. Have you been there? That's better. I watched to see what my effect my remarks had on him. And for two minutes, three minutes after we separated, my sole thoughts were, What more could I have said to impress him? And this was the conclusion he came to. I cared not an iota for my classmate. His whole connection with this person had been self-based and self-focused. Trying to be something, trying to impress, trying to put on a face a false self that would somehow either impress or ingratiate the person he was talking to. Many of us remain trapped in a pretend life because we feel the pressure to be somebody else, to live somebody else's life. But Jesus managed to do it differently. Even under all this incredible pressure, even at the the limit of human endurance, he managed to live to a true self. He managed to live in a way that actually was true to who he was. Jesus was secure in the Father's love. And because of this, he could stand incredible pressure from the people around him. He disappointed so many people in his life. He disappointed people all the time. Um, at one point, his, his mother and his siblings thought he was out of his mind. It says in Mark 3. And they came to take him away. He disappointed the people he grew up with in Nazareth. In fact, he so disappointed them by declaring the fact he was God's son, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He disappointed his closest friends, the disciples. 
They projected onto him what they thought he should be, the, the, the conquering Messiah. He disappointed their expectations of him. They quit on him. They left him to die alone a shameful death on the cross. In fact, one of them, Judas, even betrayed him for living true to himself. He disappointed the religious leaders. They attributed his power to the demonic. Jesus was a massive disappointment to many people. Do you realise that? He just disappointed people all the time because he was determined to live true to himself. He was determined to live to the identity that he had with his father. He knew his value and he knew his worth and he lived authentically to that. The pressure on us to live differently is huge. The pressure on you, the pressure on me to conform, to live a different way, to live a false self is massive because of the environment we live in. There are powerful forces working against you. There's your generational forces from your family. There's cultural forces that are all around you. And there's emotional forces within you. And all these are trying to make you live differently, to live a false self. And our hope is that as we look at this material, we're going to become more aligned to the true self that God wants for us. There's a, a helpful term used to describe this. It's called differentiation. Not in the calculus way. It's, um, it's about how we understand ourselves in God and separate from others. And you can define it this way. This is a person's capacity to define his or her own life goals and values apart from the pressure of the things around them. So can we differentiate ourselves from all the cultural things that would try and make us this is Romans 12. You know, do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So can we differentiate ourselves from all these pressures around us? And this means growing in the ability to hold on to who you are and who God's made you and not feeling like you have to conform to be somebody else. People with high levels of differentiation, they have their own convictions, their own goals, their own values. And these things don't tend to get changed by the pressures around them. They choose God. They choose to, fast, to hold fast to God. They don't want to be controlled by anxiety or approval. Um, Jesus was massively differentiated in the way he lived his life. He lived in incredibly stressful circumstances. We didn't allow those things to shape him or dictate to him. They didn't overwhelm him. So we can, we can look at what this looks like for us. If we're differentiated, then we're principle-orientated, we're goal-directed. We're largely unaffected by criticism or praise. We can separate ourselves from our family of origin and we can become our own inwardly-directed, separate adult. You know, your, your, your parents are great, your family's great, but you are now in a bigger family, the family of Christ. And as we go into contemplation, it enables us to separate ourselves healthily uh, and walk the line that God calls us to walk. Be sure of our beliefs, but not closed or dogmatic in our thinking. We can listen without reacting and communicate without antagonising. And we can respect others without having to change them. We talked briefly about this a week or so ago. And we can maintain a non-anxious presence in the midst of stress and pressure. And lastly, we take responsibility for our own life and our future. Many of us will look at this list and say, well, I'll struggle with, with particular parts of this. I don't feel like that's an area I'm fully grown in. Sometimes we make poor decisions because of the pressure around us. A lot of our self that we currently work in is a reflection of what we pe- want 
people to, to be. But we need to learn how to dismantle this false self. So we're going to look at that briefly today and then more next week. Okay? So the first thing is, pay attention to your interior in silence and solitude. You need to be alone sometimes, you need to be still sometimes, and you need to be quiet sometimes. And that's not just to fall asleep, because <laughs> that's normally what happens, isn't it? We're so tired, we stop and... We need to be proactive about finding this stillness to allow us to develop our interior life. A wise old abbot who was, um, was mentoring a, a brother who came to him for advice, he said, go sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. And the cell was just simply an empty stone room, normally with a bed. Go sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. We, we need to construct cells for ourselves in modern life. Places where we can go and sit in stillness and solitude, away from all the things that are going on around us, the pressures and the distractions. We need to construct those cells as places that um, we can do that. And that's the place where we begin to process at a deeper level. You know, why was I angry today? Why did I feel upset when that happened? Why did I feel depressed after I talked to that person? What was going on at a deeper level in my life. What was I afraid of? Now, what's taking place? As we slow down and we find stillness, then God begins to speak into those deeper places. So think about how you can make that self for yourself. Not, you can make a physical one if you want to, but you know, where could that place be? There's many amazing places around this town and these towns that you can find stillness and solitude. So... Take advantage of those places and go and find a place to be still with God. Find trusted companions. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, let the person who cannot be alone beware of community. And let the person who is not in community beware of being alone. Okay? So we need both. We need, we need solitude and we need community. They're both incredibly important. He said we're called to be alone together. Isn't that a fantastic phrase? Alone together. We need both these things present in our life. We need to be communities of solitude. We're inwardly directed by our communion with God personally. When we come together, there's that wonderful interconnection of us as well. But there's two really strong forces that will work against you and against me to prevent this happening. The first pressure we talked about is to, is to keep living lives that aren't our own, to live that other life, that false life, that, that self, that's not a self-life. The second one, which you might not be aware of, but I'm acutely aware of, is a stubborn self-will. Nobody? Okay, good. <laughs> we possess stubborn self-will, which is deeply entrenched in who we are and doesn't like change. In fact, it's more insidious than we think it is. You know, our self-will is not our best friend in terms of growth and change. The possibility of self-deception is huge. And often we live in these traps of self-deception and, and, and we just create this reality for ourselves that is far from the truth. And because of this, we need trusted people around us who can speak truth to us, who love us enough to say the hard stuff, the difficult stuff to us. We need friends, we need mentors, we need leaders, we need spouses who can do this for us. And they can help us pay attention to God 
But I also pay attention to our inconsistencies. Because we are inconsistent, aren't we, as people? We're very inconsistent. Kitty's been my most trusted companion throughout life and ministry. Um, a little while ago, I found myself becoming uncharacteristically irritable and angry. And uh, she gently but firmly pushed me back into God. And I found I got unresolved grief from my sister's death three years ago. And I had to go and take that to God and deal with it. But it was starting to spill out. It was starting to affect me. It was starting to affect the way I related to others. As I said, it would. You need trusted companions who can say to you, what's really going on there? You know, when you did that, when you reacted that way, what's, what's really going on? What's beneath the surface? Because you can't, you can't bring that observation to yourself. Yourself is more interested in preserving the status quo than it is about growing. And so, who have you got around you as a trusted companion? Somebody you trust to speak life into you and to reflect back to you your inconsistencies. Move out of your comfort zone. Hmm. We sing the songs, don't we? Spirit, leave me. <laughs> but God, you know, he's, he's, he loves those songs because when you sing them, he says, all right, then I will. I will. And we go, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. And, the, and the, we know Peter was the only person who left the boat, wasn't he? Out of all the disciples, he was the only one who left the boat. And we love the songs, we love the books. We love other people's stories about change. But when we step out of the boat and when we start to walk in places we haven't walked before, it is scary and it does create challenge. We've, we said when we, I think one of the first talks I did in um, Riverside was, you know, change brings challenge. Change brings challenge. And challenge pushes us back into God. We deepen our trust and we grow. And as we grow, change comes. And change brings challenge. And round we go. And life in the kingdom is challenging. Um, but we're constantly trying to allow God to move us out of our comfort zone. If we stay in our comfort zone, our comfort zone doesn't stay the same. It actually shrinks. Over time, if you just stay in your comfort zone, your comfort zone, zone will shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. But if we move into our stretch zone, if we move out of it, then we begin to grow. And Jesus talks about new wine sins, didn't he? Being pliable and flexible enough to take the new wine of the kingdom. The old wine skin was too rigid. It couldn't flex. New wine ferments and it expands. And uh, we need that flexibility. So we need, to, we need to continue to say to God, how can you move me out of my comfort zone? How can you move me into the new things? How can you stretch me? The greatest gift that you can give to the world is to be your true self. You don't need to be anybody else. You don't need to be a mirror of somebody else. The greatest gift you can give to the world is to be the true self that God's called you to be. And it's also the greatest gift to the church you can be as well. It's to be the true self God's called you to be. You've got a unique identity in God that God is trying desperately to draw you into. Psalm 139 says, You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And the inference there is that you are utterly unique in God. And uh, he wants to draw you into that identity, that true self of who he's made you. And the truth is, guys, you can't really love your neighbour until you've really loved yourself. Until you've really reconciled who you are and who you, you're called to be, you can't really show true love to people around you because you're loving them from a, a wrong foundation. So as we spend time in God and growing God, emotionally aware, then we get better at loving people because we got better at loving ourselves. Pray for courage. 
As we try and move into this, you will get opposition in all sorts of different ways. Murray Brown, who writes on this whole thing about differentiation, said it comes in three ways. He says the first opposition will be, you're wrong for changing, and here are the reasons why. And then people will present you with a list of reasons why you're wrong, or why you're trying to move into change, and that will be the first opposition you face. The second opposition you'll face will change back, and we'll love you again. So we liked you as you were, we're not so keen on you now. If you change back, then we'll love you again. Okay, that's the second opposition you'll face. The third one you'll face is if you don't change back, there will be consequences. And these are three oppositions that Murray says we'll all face if we want to try and grow and begin to differentiate ourselves. We might face it from our close friends, our family. We might face it in the organisations we're in. We might face it in all sorts of different ways. But if you want to try and grow into your true self, you will face opposition. And you might have worked it out by now, whenever you choose to try and move into Christ and follow Christ, you will face opposition. The devil does not want you to become truly who you are in Christ, because when you are, you're an incredibly dangerous thing to the kingdom of Satan. But if you're willing to tolerate the discomfort to move through, there are incredible rewards for us to live the true self. So we want to keep praying, don't we, the Holy Spirit, just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing what you're doing. I want to keep moving into all that you have for me. Back in 1947, no one had broken the sound barrier. And uh, it's about 760 miles an hour at sea level, Pete, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But um, there was a widely held belief that the sound barrier was like a wall of air that an aircraft would just smash into and break into smithereens. And that was why it was called the sound barrier. And in fact, a British pilot had died trying to go through the sand barrier. His plane disintegrated. And so there was a widely held belief that this barrier existed at 760 miles an hour. And along came a guy called Chuck Yeager. Chuck Yeager was part of the uh, United States Air Force, and they were developing a program to get men into space. And they needed to break through the sand barrier to do that. So they said to Chuck, will you be our man to break the sand barrier? He was their test pilot. And his boss said to him, nobody knows for sure what happens until somebody gets there. Chuck, you're flying into the unknown. So Chuck Yeager, after nine attempts on October the 14th, 1947, he finally broke the sound barrier. And this is what he wrote. I was thunderstruck. After all the anxiety, breaking the sound barrier turned out to be a perfectly paved speedway. After all the anticipation, it was a real letdown. (laughs) The unknown was a poke through jelly. This invisible wall didn't exist. He passed through the sand barrier without incident, and then he opened up a whole new field of speed and exploration that you and I enjoy and are part of. But it took someone courageous enough to enter into the unknown. Now, I don't know what your unknown is, but it, it might look like a wall to you at the moment. But in reality, it might be no more than a poke through jelly if you journey with God into it. Because the devil would tell you that you cannot move forward. There are insurmountable things ahead of you. But actually, we're all called to move forward in God. No one has ever lived your life. No one has ever gone through the things that you go through. No one can be uniquely you. But I would encourage you, in God, to press forward into all that God has for you. And to really, seriously engage some of the material we've looked at. 
give God the time and the space to draw you into your true self. Getting to know yourself can be the real adventure of a lifetime. Incredibly freeing. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If you would like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.